Well, <clears throat> good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our first AMA with Phil Squire. My name is Will. I'm head of sales at Consalia, and I'm here today to facilitate this session. This is a great opportunity to ask Phil anything. Um, so I encourage you not to hold back. No question is stupid. And I know Phil is going to rise to the challenge. We have a broad range of attendees uh, from different sectors, including telecoms, manufacturing, and SaaS software companies. So I'm really looking forward to hearing the questions and hopefully challenging our CEO. So Phil, over to you. <laughs> well, it's very nice to be here um, with some slight trepidation because you never quite know what questions may be asked, but we have been some, sent some questions in advance, I think, Will. So it would be really, really good to maybe kick off with some of those. But uh, just, just a couple of things, you know, as Will is getting the questions um, organized is there is a, a chat function that I'm sure you're all familiar with. and. Um, it would be great to get your comments uh, or questions uh, sort of put into the chat box, but uh, very much want to make this because we're quite a small group um, interactive um, as well. So I, I think it's not just about my opinion, but I think it's about your opinions as well uh, to some of the questions that have been raised. So yeah. I'm going to call upon you if you don't mind to give your points of view alongside mine uh and if they're slightly different that's no problem at all so okay well so um to everyone that's kind of inputted a question before this session thank you very much because that's really made my life a lot easier um i'm going to start with this one phil which is Around the, the big resignation that we're hearing quite a lot about at the moment. So we've had this question in. My biggest struggle at the moment is recruiting salespeople. How can I attract and retain the best talent at my organisation? Um, it's, well, it's quite interesting that, um, that there, there seems to be quite a, yeah, quite a big problem with finding talent at the moment. Um, in sales that you know one of one of the clients we're working with has a 30 percent of their sales positions are currently open at the moment and um you know this whole topic of attraction and and retention is is hugely important um so how do i attract um how do i attract talent i think you know, you've got a number of different avenues that one one can pursue. I, th I think what we're finding, particularly with the younger people coming into sales, is they're very much driven not not just about the job and the salary, but about the general purpose um, that's behind the organisations who are actually recruiting uh, positions for. Um, so uh, that might have an influence over your ability to actually get people looking at uh, particular jobs that, that, that may be um, vacant. Um, we're doing quite a lot of work with organizations like UCAS, particularly in uh, the United Kingdom, to put sales at the forefront of people's minds as they're coming into the sales profession itself um 
and uh, but it's a that's a, that's a long term project in its own in its own right. So in terms of attraction, I think uh, we're finding people are having to at the moment reevaluate sort of package levels because of the scarcity of salespeople in 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 the market. In terms of of retention, I think that the pandemic is has had a, a sort of huge impact on people's well-being, the sense of being valued in an organization. Um, and you know, a lot of a lot of this is to do with the ability of organizations to really care, support, and develop their salespeople. Um, so yeah, um, I mean, these are my two initial thoughts. I don't know if we've got any silver bullets to it, but um, you know, it, it, it definitely is a widespread issue. Be interesting to get uh, other people's comments or thoughts on it um, uh, th themselves. It's interesting you mentioned the post-pandemic kind of era as we're emerging out of it because Ian Jones did ask a question as well around what characteristics and behaviours do salespeople need to adopt in order to be successful in the post-pandemic era? I'm wondering if you could comment on that. Um, I, I certainly can. and it, it, Actually, it's really helpful getting these questions in advance because it gives you a little bit of time to... Um, kind of get your thoughts together. But I, I know that when the pandemic hit, uh, we produced a, um, a thought paper, if you like, uh, a concept about how we felt uh, the situation for salespeople and their relationships and customers might change and how they needed to adapt their behaviors. And I'm just going to share my screen if I can um, to see if I can um i don't know if you can see that will yes i can see it it's, it's the um kind of space curve and th this might be for uh ian and others who might be interested in this particular question but but i think the context of where we are today in the pandemic and therefore what salespeople need to do could be discussed in the context of what's happened over the last two years uh when COVID-19 hit us a couple of years ago, I think uh, we saw many companies go through um, different phases of, if you like, survival um, through to a, a sort of emergence. If I just talk very briefly through these, these phases. So the survive phase was, was very much concerned with you know, protecting cash, sort of trying to get our heads around what the implications would be of the pandemic to um, the way we do business. Um, and it's very much about cost stabilization. And I think if we were in, you know, at this stage of the pandemic, which is really early on, as a salesperson selling to customers, you know, part of what we would have been doing at that stage is is sort of speaking to customers, hearing what challenges and problems that they were going through. Probably as a customer, you may not be open to initially any sort of new ideas at this stage because it was very much about damage limitation. Uh, you had a situation where organizations were potentially going out of business, uh, supply chain being affected, um, 
again from a customer perspective looking at you know you know what what's going to be our key strategy moving forward as far as our key suppliers and partners are and knowing that you know maybe we're into six months a year of the pandemic at this stage we know that the new the world is going to change there's going to be this sort of new normal but but how are we going to transform and so um the relationship that customers and I think salespeople were having at this stage was one of sort of exploration, um, realizing that there was going to be a shift in mindset required, but not quite knowing what the future was going to look like um, because it was all so new and so fresh. Um, but because the world has also experienced, I think, in the last two years, a sort of very much from a digital point of view, a sort of transformation, not just in the way that salespeople are interacting now with customers, but in the kind of technologies that can enable organizations to move very quickly um, into adopting perhaps new business models. And this, this phase then, the agile phase of, if, if you like, the pandemic would see customers wanting to act fast, perhaps with some sort of knowledge now, uh, you know, what the new norm looked like um, and wanting at this point of their buying journey, if you like, buying cycle to seek out those partners with whom they could um, start to talk to. Of course, this is a huge generalization and each customer is going to have reacted to the pandemic in in different ways. Um, so I understand this is a kind of a generalization, but I think it's it's across many of the customers that we've worked with, um, we've seen this in action. And we've, we've seen this actually happening. Um, so if I if I pick up from the agile phase, then we move into a phase which which is very much around co-creation um, because businesses have had to move so quickly and so fast. Uh, we think that the relationships they have with partners and suppliers and salespeople becomes very um, creative. Um, and we move into this sort of co-create phase, which is grounded in trust a trust that the salesperson really understands, you know, the business, the people, um, uh, the relationships have been tested, you know, we can trust you. Um, but, but with an added layer of creativity and sort of strategic thought that in a co-creation phase enables salespeople and customers to work together to potentially create new solutions. It's a very a sort of a, a, a an adaptive environment. And then out of this, hopefully to uh, emerge kind of stronger. Um, and I've put, we put here the word purposeful um, and grateful. I come back to sort of purposeful a little bit, a bit later. Um, so this, this graph was, or this chart was put together at the beginning of the pandemic. So Ian, to your question, <laughs> You know, what about the post-pandemic era? Um, um, the, the context through which we've been through and the context through which relationships have 
strengthened and weakened during this kind of process um, suggests that the, the salespeople in the post-pandemic phase who are going to succeed are those that have, have actually helped their customers through this change curve where those trust levels have been established and who've gone beyond the trust to create that sort of strategic conversation with customers, which, which leads to added value. Um, and this links also, and I'll pause because Ian, I'm sure you've got your own point of view on it. <laughs> this kind of leads also to <clears throat> some of the work that was done pre-pandemic by uh, Dr. Julian Birkenshaw, who's at um, the London Business School, who who talked about sources of competitive advantage and was suggesting that democracy and ad hocracy, democracy, this is the emotional attachment between a, a, a company and its suppliers is going to become more important in the post-knowledge era. And ad hocracy being this ability to think quickly on your feet. Um, and I think that where we're at now is very much in that world where the emotional relationships that are created through trust and creativity and sort of being bold and correct. We, we talk about tactful audacity are becoming even more important moving forward. Ian, shall I pause there and see, <laughs> give you a chance to comment? <clears throat> uh, Phil, I, I'm, I'm very grateful for you sharing this chart uh, because I, it, it certainly reflects uh, some of the things that have happened in South Africa uh, that have impacted my clients, both people who are customers uh, and, and salespeople. And, and I think it's brought into very sharp focus uh, some of the anomalies in the role of salesperson uh, that have grown up over many decades. I, I have to declare that I'm a salesperson by profession, so anything that I say generically about salespeople um, is not meant to downgrade the function or individuals carrying out that function in any way. But um, when I used to talk to people uh, about their experience of salespeople and how they would describe salespeople, if they were non-sales professionals, it would be some version of ignorant, lazy, and overpaid. Yeah. Uh, and, and it seemed to reflect that many salespeople out there didn't really care about their customers, didn't really care an awful lot about their products, uh, but were very target-driven uh, and were looking to make their target as quickly and easily as possible and reap all the benefits that went along with that. Now, come this... COVID experience, which you had so beautifully described in that chart, uh, the time that customers were prepared to spend with people of that ilk um, reduced to almost completely zero. Uh, and the things that salespeople thought they were good for, like conveying information that the customer needed, the customer had accelerated the move to getting all the information that they need from the internet, and from published mm. material online. Uh, and they had also got to use social media 
much more in as a platform for getting comparative information about what was out there uh, and what they might select uh, for solutions for themselves. So it, it became a, 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 a bit of a story whereby the customer was looking for the kind of contribution in the agile and co-create phase that you've illustrated in that chart. Mm. It didn't find too many takers uh, on the sales end of the equation. And, and, and I think that the outcome of that, certainly in some cases that I've observed in South Africa, is that there is an enormous amount of confusion uh, among salespeople as to their new role, if I can put it that way. Um, there is a gap widening between salespeople and their management who are saying, hey, guys, you know, this is the target. Go out there and sell, sell, sell and bring in the business because we need it for our survival. Uh, and I'm not at all surprised that there aren't a lot of people rushing to become salespeople. Uh, and, and I am noticing a trend here in South Africa, certainly, of people moving out of the profession because it isn't what they were used to and they're not quite sure where it should be anymore. And there aren't too many people giving them the guidance that they would like and that they would need on how they need to reposition themselves. Wow. That's really interesting. You raised again quite a lot of um, uh, sort of points. I wonder if any any of the others on the call would like to kind of chip in and comment on what um, Ian has just described as the situation in South Africa. Yeah, I can add a comment there if I may, Phil. Yeah, Ryan, of course. Yeah, I was. Very similar, very similar experience. And, and as you know, I've been doing some of my own research over the last few years in this space, and it, it aligns pretty much to what uh, what Ian was just out uh, describing. So if you describe what, what's worst about the profession, I think Ian did a, did a very eloquent job there. Uh, mm. What clients really want is obviously people that uh, are dedicated to them. They understand the industry, understand uh the technology, the landscape uh, are committed to uh, delivering success and uh, all the other things that come along with that. And I think um, since since COVID, those qualities are even more in focus. And I think by nature of the way we're interacting with clients now, mm. that's the way that it's turned out. So the, the other side of the relationship, which you might call the softer side, which is the, uh, the, the, the meeting in person and, and the, the general sort of rapport building conversational type of, of relationship, I think has, has obviously fallen by the wayside by the very nature in which we're interacting with clients now. So it is distilled down to, on an individual level, what you can bring uh, as value to, to the client. And if it's, in a, if it's early in the relationship, you need to demonstrate that. Uh, and that, that's your opportunity to do that. And from your from your organisation, the vendor organisation perspective, it's about the how they're understanding and proposing to solve the problems. So, really, just aligned to what, what Ian was suggesting there, uh, that it's it's focused on bringing value to the client more so than ever now. So, I think that's the big shift. Yeah. And there's, I wonder if I uh, will, if I can just add one more comment. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, to that. 
uh, unless there are any questions from the others here on the call as well, just put them into chat, but other, otherwise I may dominate too much. We, we do have one question that was submitted that I okay. think is quite aligned to what's been spoken about. Okay. Um, which is to do with sales organizations setting incredibly ambitious targets um, that it's been quite difficult to achieve them. So as a sales practitioner, um, do you have any thoughts about how you should approach your sales leadership team or your sales management team to, uh, <laughs> to kind of it's... bring them back into reality? Are you suggesting your target... This isn't my personal it, question. It, 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 <laughs> talking about your own personal sales targets. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, um, no, I, I think we have seen sometimes very unrealistic targets and that's linked with thresholds and that links with commission. And, and that if they're unrealistic targets, I think it's dangerous. And I think if it's, if it's not set at the right levels, then people will obviously vote by leaving. Uh, and we've seen that across a number of organizations that, that we've worked where, where the pressure on group sales directors, for example, to achieve targets um, to serve shareholder interests uh, has been so, so significantly strong that it sort of rippled down throughout the entire organization and, and it's caused huge problems. Like you say, the great resignation question kind of earlier on. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to the relationship that a sales leader has with his sales teams. And I think it's to do with intent. Um, and I guess a, a combination of intent and time. If, if you believe that your sales director has the intent not to set such high targets, but has been forced to do it, you might give the sales director some leeway in not leaving immediately in the good faith that they will be able to sort out more realistic targets later. Um, but that is also connected. Oh, sorry, was someone going to ask a question on that? Maybe, maybe not. Okay. Um, but I, I think that's also linked to purpose. Um, because if you really believe in the purpose that your organization is setting out to achieve, you will then it's more likely to drive loyalty and patience with dealing with some of the frustrations that you may encounter with rather rigid processes and perhaps unrealistic targets. So I think this, the last couple of years has been a huge learning curve for both leaders as well as uh, salespeople. Uh, I was personally surprised at how few companies readjusted sales targets during the pandemic to reflect what you know the obvious trends that were taking place. Um, and I wondered why those targets weren't readjusted. Um, so uh, you know, is it because of the bureaucracy of sometimes these very large companies not being able to adapt quickly enough? Or was it a fear? That that you know that that stayed with the organize you know that uh, a fear of the organization to be seen to be setting slightly lower objectives is a sort of sign of weakness perhaps I, I'm not sure um, I think it would be an area of of research actually <laughs> that we should look into you know into to, to reflect back back on on this topic 
Um, but but if if I could add just one other comment about this, which is to do with purpose, and I think that we are seeing a shift at different levels uh, with uh, at a macro level um, with um, economists suggesting that traditional forms of capitalist capitalism and capitalistic thinking does not serve the best interests of of humanity and the planet and and you're seeing organizations like blackrock making you know statements about not investing in organizations that uh, don't have a you know a strong csr um, policy and kpis around it and i think directors are being held more to to more account on the less tangible aspects perhaps of the businesses that they're that that they're running and i mean this i think this has got a lot of time yet you know to see how this is going to fall out into this sort of pressured sales world in which we live um but i think to your question ian about um you know what skills are required i think that salespeople need to be very much in tune with um not only you know the purpose-driven agendas of their own organization but also of the customers to whom they sell uh, and that appreciation of purpose and it's linked with the solutions that salespeople sell are going to become increasingly more important in this post-pandemic world in which we live um, so I think I've answered Ian's question as much as we can <laughs> on that. Thank you, so. Yeah, thank you. It's great, great debate on that one. Well, great. I've noticed Ryan runs having to jump on another call, but he did submit a question, um, which is, what is your advice for a client serious about developing a key account management strategy? And what are the pitfalls that you need to, to avoid? What is your advice for a client series about developing a CAM strategy um, and pitfalls? God, I think it starts with um, segmentation and really being thoughtful about which customers would you first of all deem important enough to be called a key account because we know that the actual cost of setting up an effective key account strategy um, or key account teams is is very high um, but so i think it it would start with a set of criteria that you would establish as a filter through which to do that kind of selection process a key account may not necessarily be your biggest account um, because of the nature of relationship you, you have with them. Um, they may see you as more a, a transactional kind of supplier and it may not lend itself to the kind of full support structures needed to support a key account in a strategic sense. Um, so I would start with segmentation um, I think one of the things that is a bit of a challenge with selecting key accounts is the um, 
is the buying cycles that those key accounts uh, those key accounts have. They tend to go through cyclical phases of spending a lot of money and then going quiet, uh, maybe for a couple of years, and then coming up for another um, uh, sort of reinvestment, if you like, in the kind of solutions that your company's provided. I think the pitfalls to avoid is um, the, sometimes the complacency that could be driven with some of the um, short-term KPIs that are set around um, key account management, uh, which encourages perhaps key account teams to take their focus off the boil because they can't see one of these big um, sales opportunities coming their way. Um, and I think that what we're now beginning to see with the advent of account-based marketing, uh, coupled with um, key account managers, um, is, is being able to see ways of keeping your brand in front of your, your key account, your key accounts uh, through the duration of, of, of various buying cycles that they're likely to go through. And I think this is a relatively new area uh, in terms of looking at the science that goes behind key, um, key account management and key, key account strategies. Um, so, so Ryan's question, he's not here to, to sort of comment on that question. So that may be a, quite a quick one for me to, to kind of answer unless there are other people who would like to comment on key account strategies. But I'll leave it for there as he's, as he's left the call. I, I think we can move on to another question. <laughs> sure. And I'll just pause here before I, I fire another question to invite any of our attendees to, to put any questions in the chat function. Um, has there, is there any comments or reflections on what, on what Phil has just said? I can see that we have some of our apprentices actually as part of our attendees. So I just wanted to welcome Luke. Luke, I believe you're, you're from Ensono um, and have recently joined our program. And I just wanted to say thanks for submitting some questions. Um, I will read them out, but if you have any kind of feedback for Phil, please be my guest. Uh, so Phil, actually, we're kind of taking a step in a slightly different direction. Um, but when looking back at your career, because you know you've been working in sales for quite a number of years, what have what were some of the key decisions you made that were pivotal to to your success? Golly. That's from Luke. Um, I think it's. Uh, let me just go back to some of the notes I made on this question because it's a, it's a, it's it's a very interesting. Um, it's it, it, it's always interesting to look back. Um, when I when I started off my career, uh, Luke, I, I was actually in banking. I worked for one of the very large international banks, and I left what was then a, a very sort of steady career role um, for one which which was then in sales, my first kind of sales role, um, and. I suppose that decision to leave banking for a much more entrepreneurial kind of lifestyle 
was was a key decision. It, it, it uh, and didn't take me long to actually make that decision because I knew that I just didn't like working for a big corporation. Um, and so moving into sales was one of the 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 key things that I I learned a lot from, and it uh, it links a little bit about. It, to one of the questions late, late, later on, I can see that's been posed. Um, at quite a year, an early stage, I decided to set up my own company. So I think I, I moved out of banking into sales, was in sales for about four years, and then I started my own business. And I think that um, that when I started when I started my business in the, the sort of early Yes, there was a, there's a lot of risk associated with this. Um, and a lot of people see risk as failure or, fa or you know, they're worried about failure and they, they sort of never take risk. Um, so I think this decision to set up my own company was a pivotal moment, which has contributed to perhaps where we are today. And a lot of my early decisions were not particularly lucrative. You know, it was, you know, I, I failed a lot. And I think that I've, but I've never seen failure as being negative. I've always seen it as being something that you can learn from. Um, I, and I, I think that really helped, you know, through the trials and tribulations of running your own business. It, it, it sort of, you learning from those mistakes helped create a sort of modicum of, of success. Um, but then I think it was, it was relatively, I didn't go to university until I was very late in my career. And it was in 2004 that I, I did my doctorate. And that for me was a hugely pivotal moment uh, in my career development. And I, you know, seeing that interconnect between education and, and sales was for me a transformative moment. Well, it started in 2004 and of course it continues um, to this day. So, to, so um, I would say that that, that that chance to reflect back on your, on your career as part of the DPROF and start to formulate some sort of sense of what mattered was, was hugely influential. And then in 2006, we created Consalia. Um, this was a joint venture between uh, four companies and it was formed out of actually failure. We, we lost a big deal to Hewlett Packard and they, we lost it because the capital structure of Consalia was not strong enough to deal with a client the size of Hewlett Packard. And so um, out of failure, if you like, uh, we formed Consalia as a as a joint venture and so I would say a lot of the key decisions were driven out of learning from mistakes and and and, and sort of taking those learnings and deciding you know how are you going to use those to shape a better future and uh, so I think I've answered uh, the question about about you know key decisions that were taken that, that were pivotal World. So, uh, is it I, Luke or Lucas? I'm not quite sure if it's Luke. a Luke. Luke, yeah. Uh, so, Luke, thank you for asking that question. 
Thank you. So it sounds like you learned a lot through failure. <laughs> That's probably where I, you are I today. I would say, yeah, I've always laughed at failure, actually. I, uh, because if if I'm, whenever I, you know, I wish I was one of those people that got things right first time, but that just never, ever happens. Uh, so I tend to sometimes, uh, with a certain amount of incredulity, see if if there's a way for something to go wrong, I normally find it. <laughs> quite early on and uh, uh but 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 out of that i i try and get some learning from it um yeah great so luke i i don't know if that's been helpful or insightful to hear from phil's mistakes as he's gone through his career <laughs> but um you know i wish you all your all the best as you go through the the level six b2b program and i'm sure you'll get to challenge phil more often as well um, actually, Simon Wheeler's just posted a comment in the chat function. Right. Okay. Um, he's currently working on his dissertation with the title, Can Vision and Coaching Be Combined as a Strategy to Reduce Attrition or Sales Professions in the Backdrop of the Great Resignation? Oh, um, so I that, love that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a fabulous title, Simon. I think Thank you, Phil. that that is really a great title. Can vision and coaching be combined as a strategy to reduce attrition of sales professionals? And the yeah, well, I think Simon, we're going to have to call you back onto this uh, conversation uh, when you've uh, finished your dissertation uh, to share your learnings on that <laughs> that particular one. Uh, well, yeah, I mean the. I guess the inspiration for it is, you know, we've seen a lot of movement within our organization, uh, yeah. certainly recently. And obviously there's been a huge amount of media attention to this new phenomenon yeah. of the great resignation. And really my, my research project is inspired by a desire to help businesses reduce churn of sales professionals and improve profitability by minimizing talent acquisition costs, because, you know, acquisition of high caliber sales yeah. professionals, it's expensive, right? And yeah. to the point that you made earlier, the, you know, organizations are having to re-review packages in order to, to get the, the right people through the door. So I think we have an opportunity to do something about it. And I think at the heart of my dissertation, you know, the point that I'm looking to try and evidence through research is that traditional employee retention strategies yeah. you know in the most part in today's climate are not working and I think we need a new and fresh and customized approach to try and yeah. combat and address this issue such a great a great topic um, I just wonder whether within vision you have the word purpose as well whether that's a subset of vision yeah so really the, the, at, at the core what I'm trying to what I'm really researching is can you reduce employee churn by alert, by aligning personal vision and goals to yeah. organizational vision and purpose and thus create a deeper connection with the business because right. to your point that i believe you know my hypothesis is that that will drive improved loyalty yeah that's great yeah i don't know if ian's still on the call but it'd be interesting to, to hear what ian has to say about the title of your dissertation yeah, it, it fascinates me because ever since 2012, when Gallup first started to publish the findings of their research, 
which showed that the global workforce was to a very large extent, a high percentage in, ex in excess of 65% disengaged, either actively by which they meant people are out there deliberately sabotaging the organization or at very best have got their CVs out there and passively doing only that which was necessary to ensure they got paid at the end of the month. And a small percentage were truly engaged in the work of the organization. And it seemed to me in those days, and the, the stats haven't materially improved over time, that that was a tragedy, both from an employer's point of view and from an employee's point of view. And I spent the most of my time as a coach working with clients as employees and as employers to work on strategies that would allow the purpose of the organization, the vision of the organization, to be made manifest to the people working in the business in such a way that they could make a meaningful contribution through the alignment of what they see as their purpose in life and what they're here in the world to do. Mm. And as a, as a result, improve dramatically uh, the engagement of employees with the organization that they work for. And like all things, I've seen some successes and some spectacular failures, but I'm fascinated to discover that it is still a main point of focus for organizations and individuals. Mm. Thank you, Ian. That's great. So, Simon, you, you may want to link up with Ian after the call <laughs> to get... Um, yeah, as part it, of your research says <laughs> it, it, it's some re some really interesting points you make there, Ian. And I think there's, you know, there, there's there's probably some good intent out there and some dreadful execution. Um, yeah. So, yeah. but really interesting. Thank you, thank yeah. you for the the feedback, guys. That's great, great. Okay, Will, how are we doing? So we we're, we're doing all right. Um, I've got a question that I've just received, which might link back to this topic. It's a bit um, <laughs> negative, <laughs> but uh, this is it. Um, I see no sense of pride in my salespeople. How can I drive them to believe that this is a great profession to be in? And it's not just about the money side of things. I don't know if you could comment on that, but I think it leads to purpose and coaching and... Golly. So presumably that's yeah. said from a, a manager's perspective. Yeah. I guess. No sense of pride, golly. God, so much of this has to do with values, isn't it? And beliefs and and so on. And and um it sounds it sounds like there's a a real fundamental kind of problem um at a values misalignment around that. And uh, maybe that is linked, like you said, to purpose. Well, you know, um, maybe maybe there's no. It's very difficult to muster pride in an organisation in which you have absolutely no belief <laughs> in what they're doing. Uh, so I guess it's it comes back to that word purpose. So uh, yeah, I think it is connected very much with the topic of Simon's kind of dissertation um uh but said through the yeah said through the lens of a manager um so i guess what could the manager do 
Uh, um, it's it's perhaps to see if he can reestablish a, a unified commitment to purpose, and that may take you know some offsite meetings or whatever you know whatever it takes to kind of get to grips with the fundamental principles of why people join a join an organization I, I i don't think it's personally i don't think it's been easy with the pandemic to get people together and i i think that there has been a divergence of of people's values and beliefs and you know you don't have that community that you get by by being physically together with people mm. so it could be that because of a lack of communication contact human contact that actually there, there's been for many organizations a slight disconnect between the workforce and the organizations for whom uh, they're they're employed so so what would be interesting back to sort of this, this area of Simon's dissertation question is to what extent has the pandemic itself created an environment that's made some of these challenges even more so? And um, is that a kind of an artificial influencer that has created these problems or is there um, something more fundamental, you know, perhaps coming back to what we talked about earlier with, Julian Birkinshaw's work on democracy mm. um, and purpose-driven organizations. I don't know. It's uh, not sure that we, we know the answer to that, but um, yeah, I don't know if I've answered that question sufficiently, but I think it's obviously something that that manager needs to try and reestablish pride. I mean, if he's got pride, does he have pride in the company? Yeah. Uh, I think he, assuming he does, then there's everything to go for. If he doesn't, well, I suspect he'll find another job somewhere <laughs> at some point. Interesting. I'm, I'm just conscious of time. So as we are emerging from the pandemic and, you know, I'm certainly seeing that um, we're meeting up with customers face-to-face -face now and there's a sort of energy kind of emerging um, as we get into 2022 what, what are your what, what are you looking forward to the most this year in terms of what you haven't been able to do in the last two years um, well I think that it's it's doing just that it's it's actually seeing people in a face-to-face -face environment um, and I recently took a trip a, a long-haul trip over to Singapore and it, you know just the process of 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 getting on a plane and traveling um, interestingly when Consalia was first formed in 2006 about 80 percent of our business was international and you know typical my typical month was spent maybe two weeks of the month were were um, sort of traveling around the world, um, sort of working with clients and also visiting some of our offices in the different countries. Um, I think the thing that I'm really looking forward to is actually just looking at people face to face, <laughs> face to face. And I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that there's a pent up demand for 
um, for both customers and salespeople. I think there's a pent up opportunity to actually um, be ahead of the game by getting out there quickly and actually not, not relying on Zoom or Teams for meetings, but actually meeting people in person. Um, so that's what I'm really looking forward to. And it started to happen already, and I'm really looking forward to it continuing. That's great. So am I. Um, Caroline has actually put a, a question into chat. So wh uh, what's your view on the concept of non-quota-bearing salespeople? God, Caroline, that's such a great question. <laughs> uh, I love that question. Um, okay, so there's a non-quota bearing salespeople. Um, there's, there's, there's a school of thought that um, one of the great levers for driving sales performance is the KPIs driven around uh, quota bearing uh, targets and so on. And it's definitely a tool that's used at a strategic level, you know, to get um, people focused on the things that the managers need to uh, managers, you know, the key, the key objectives. And it is like an escalation. It starts with, you know, how people get remunerated at senior level and it, it filters all the way down through to the salespeople. I, I, have to say that I think that in many cases it drives a non-client centric behavior um, and so if you're defining sales success um, around uh, meeting and exceeding customer expectations I think there's a strong argument to say that you're more likely to achieve that through salespeople who are non-quota bearing because um, the customer knows that the salespeople are not out there to meet a target. They're not out there to sell, you know, some stock that they need to shift pretty quickly. Um, they're out there purely to serve the interests of the customer. Um, and so I know this is slightly controversial because, you know, you're basically saying, I think you should, you know, potentially get rid of targets for salespeople or sales targets. And that's not quite what I'm saying, um, but I am moving in, you know, slightly towards that direction. I know that in some organizations, you know, because of the buying cycle of customers could be over a two year period, is that they have a high percentage of the remuneration is, is fixed and a small percentage is quota bearing. Um, but I, I think that I've always held the view that if you start from the customer's perspective and work backwards, you'll always find the right answers. So uh, this, this whole topic of quota bearing, um, if you get customers giving you a point of view, to what extent would that be aligned with the, quote, um, the supplier point of view as far as, far as salespeople are concerned? Um, Given that only 10% of salespeople sell in a way customers want, according to our research, I would suggest that those organizations have the courage to explore uh, non-quota bearing, um, perhaps could come out of it rather well, perhaps selling more than they would have done otherwise. Um, but I'm very happy to be shot down here on this uh, 
AMA session that we've got uh, with people with different points of view. I don't know, Caroline, if you want to uh, comment on what I've just shared. I think it's an interesting, an interesting uh, answer, Phil. It's, a, it's just something that's been mooted in certain um, yeah. quarters, and I was just interested in what your what your views were uh, were on it. Actually, um, I'm I'm quite long in the tooth, and uh, okay. long quota bearing salespeople is quite a unique phenomenon to, to me. <laughs> the, do you know there's a there's a fabulous book um, uh, which is sort of Zen and the Art of Archery. I don't know if you've come across it. It's a serious book written by a German. A philosopher who is he went out to uh, Japan, and um, it, it it was about um, it was it was literally learning how to fire an arrow to hit a target, and it, he describes the frustration he had in the first sort of four years of learning to become a master archer. The first two years were just about breathing and pulling the bowstring. It was nothing to do with the target. And the master that was coaching him never looked at where his arrows went. They simply looked at what it was that he was doing to hit target. By the end of his four years, he hit target all the time. So I'm, I'm kind of interested mm -hmm. in this whole notion of leading and lagging indicators, which um, is kind of connected to this non-quota bearing kind of concept and if you're doing the right things the results will follow um, but I suspect uh, and and we we tend to start at the whole topic of values and beliefs if 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 salespeople are acting in the right way and doing the right things the right results will follow so if your reason for quota bearing is driving behavior I'm not sure that you should use remuneration necessarily to force it um, I think you should look at other areas, but I suspect a combination of the both is what to look at. And I think we're more in favor of company performance um, bonus schemes rather than individual performance bonus schemes. So you're all sharing in the success of the organization. But I, I know that this is um, a kind of maverick view and uh, uh, it's just a point of view I've got, and I'm not sure necessarily it works in every organization that we work with. <laughs> Sorry, Caroline. <laughs> well, what do you think? Do you think it's a risky idea? <laughs> I'm interested to put it into the group and see if people agree or disagree with your comments. <laughs> yeah, I'd love, love the debate. Yeah. It's, it's put it pretty... to the vote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the vote. No, it is. It's really good. It's a really good point. I mean, we don't have quota bearing salespeople inside Consalia. We, we, we work towards a company scheme. And that was because at an early stage, we saw it drove individualistic behavior and we felt that wasn't in the interest of our customers. Um, but that's us. Mm. It's, not, it's not necessarily the case with our customers. So uh, really interesting debate, Caroline. I'd love to follow up on this with you at some point. <laughs> Great. Okay, well, I'm reaching... very conscious of the time. We're reaching the hour. Um, I just wanted to say a big thank you for everyone that submitted questions and engaged throughout this AMA with Phil. Um, we would be delighted if you could share feedback and uh, whether or not this was uh, useful.
because we we're planning to do a few more of them throughout the year um and so yeah just on behalf of consalia thank you very much phil i don't know if you have any comments you want to say just thank you i've really enjoyed uh, the conversation and um yeah, the freeform questions in particular, you know, the ones that come out of the blue. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> we've uh, covered so, a lot. Yeah, yeah. We have. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone, for joining. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. So what's your selling approach like? Are you selling in a way that your customers want to be sold to? From our research, only 10% of salespeople sell in a way that customers want. But what do customers want when they're being sold to? It's no secret that here at Consalia, we've embedded the sales values and mindsets that customers want to see in salespeople into everything we do, from our sales business school through to our sales transformation offering. So how do you know whether or not you've got them? We have a very simple mindset survey to see if you possess these key values. It's really straightforward to use, it will only take a few minutes to complete and you'll be sent your results straight after. You may be just a bit surprised at the results yourself. Check out the show notes at the end of this podcast episode. What you do with the results next is your choice. We're happy to dive deeper into these results to discuss what they mean, or even explore the idea of finding out if your customers see these key values in your approach.